welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday. What is the date? May 27th. May 27th, 2022. I'm John Pudhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Once again, having to talk to you over my phone rather than over my better computer audio. I apologize. But the good news is that Christine Rosen, our senior writer, is back. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Along with Abe Greenwald, our, our executive editor. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rossman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we have been, um, you know, tearing ourselves apart here in the United States over the meaning, the larger meaning of the horrible shooting in Texas on uh, Tuesday. And um, it appears that a new wrinkle has come up in the discussion of the entire matter, which is that uh, those who are tasked with either preventing, interdicting, or stopping these kinds of events from happening, the people we empower to do that as a society, uh, there is increasing evidence that they were, that law enforcement was incredibly derelict in its handling of this matter uh, in a way that is um, almost unimaginable. And maybe the, the second tranche of stories suggesting this are, uh, are going to be revised yet again. And it's going to turn out that it's not the case that there was no one on duty at the school. It's not the case that he was shooting for 10 minutes before he even got into the school or that it took them 47 or 48 minutes uh, to find him and not, and it wasn't even them. It wasn't even law enforcement that found them. It was a border patrol agent who exceeding his writ went into the building to try to rescue or do what he could to, to, to stop to stop the events from happening. So that this changes everything. And maybe it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change that the shooter did it and that these are things that we're doing in this country that we haven't, that people haven't done before and they don't do them very much in other countries. But it changes the nature of the massacre that he had an hour uh, in which no one in law enforcement actively prevented him from carrying out his evil mission. And we're sort so of blurring over the timeline because the timeline is incomprehensible now. Everything we were told initially was wrong. Everything we were told initially did not happen. Apparently, now according to reports, um, the gunman did show up on the scene and was firing for the for 12 minutes outside the uh, facility, the school, he entered the, the school via an unlocked door. Um, all this was news to us. Police arrived on the scene relatively quickly, about seven responding officers. Apparently, this is all the new news that we know, and it's subject to revision, apparently, um, at which point they engaged primarily in crowd control, in part because they were taking fire and retreated to more fortified positions and uh tried to control the crowd, tried to uh, keep the, the parents that had showed up there um, in line. They were arresting them. They were putting them on the ground in handcuffs. They were pepper spraying them. Apparently one woman uh, managed to vault over these barricades and just enter the school and try to rescue her children 
while the shooting was ongoing because the police were not responding to an active ongoing shooting situation. Um, and we, and as you say, then a, a, a border control officer intervened um, and they were waiting for tactical teams to, to show up to reinforce them because they, they were being shot at. And apparently that was very intimidating, but this is what we know now. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around the sequence of events. Um, I think uh, among other things that, that this points to, um, and it's not that we shouldn't hold the law enforcement accountable for, for what they did or failed to do here, we definitely should. But it is a reminder that these events are, again, statistically rare, um, because it is the kind of thing that you don't have, few, few have experience, uh, few, few, few police officers have experiencing, experience having, having dealing with, having dealt with one such situation. Right before facing another one. Yeah. Well, it's know? interesting too, that we, we live in the era of school shut school lockdown drills. My kids do them a lot. You know, if you have a kid in, in school, they, they, in a public school in particular, they probably have practiced a lockdown drill. What to do if there's a threat inside the school, you lock down your classroom, how to stay safe until law enforcement comes. In this case, the total chaos. I mean, the fact that there was no, uh, I will point out one, one thing, which is a culture we're making a decision towards that does actively put more kids at risk. And that's the removal of police officers assigned to schools. This, this school did not have one, even though initially we were told there was a, a, an armed officer at the school. In my city, they're removing all those armed officers. Lots of lots of school districts are getting rid of the police officer that often patrols. That's that's not good for kids. However, in this case, the, the police themselves were giving messages, uh, shouting things like, if you can hear us, say help. And there's this heartbreaking, heartbreaking interview one of the local news stations did with one of the kids that survived in the classroom. And he and his friend were hiding. And they heard the police say, shout if you need help. And someone said help and who had been hiding in the classroom and the gunman killed him. Like this, this poor child, like he was like, he knew to stay quiet and stay hidden, but other kids didn't. And the police, in fact, were exacerbating the risk of these kids by, by the chaos and by telling them to shout help when, when they should have been rushing in and dealing with, with the threat. That's their job. All right. Well, this does change. It changes everything in so far as the arguments now that are being made. <laughs> by both sides as a, uh, because of, you know, the stupid arguments, the obnoxious arguments about guns and, and, you know, what we can do to harden schools have changed dramatically now, because now we're talking about doors and multiple entryways and the people who are saying gun control, gun control, gun control say, well, you know, if these cops couldn't respond to a live fire situation, why would a, why would a on-duty police officer do better? Um, I don't know how to refute any of these arguments. I, I really don't. We can't make policy based on this event. It's too unique. Right. And I think we are tempted, you're tempted in these circumstances to extrapolate from them to an entire society. You know, what does it mean about our society and our law enforcement that they, that somebody would actually step up from, you know, sort of the Texas state police and say, well, they were worried they would get shot. So they didn't go in. Uh, and then you say, well, what does that tell us about our society that our, even our, our, our peace officers are too, you know, have, have lost their commitment to their job that, you know, they, they're the ones that are supposed to, they're there. We arm them and give them, you know, a monopoly on the use of force so that they're there to, they're there in these circumstances to do this. 
But, you know, it's one town in one place, in one state out of 50 states, one town out of 3,309 counties in the United States. You know, maybe it's a bad police chief. Maybe they're the people who were there are poorly trained and they're really bad and they're not as good as cops elsewhere. Um, you can't tag the entire world of law enforcement with this with their failure. We still don't really know what happened, but that is what we do in these extreme and unique circumstances is that we start making policy based on them on the on the grounds that this can never happen again. What happened here can never happen again, and we must you know do what we can to make sure that nothing comparable to it ever happens again. And then in each of these cases, with the exception of the fact that, they're, that they happen and that they involve armed psychopaths, you know, targeting vulnerable people who will not be armed at the time that they're targeted, people in churches, people in schools, um, there's nothing in common. You know, this guy had nothing in common. You know, may, the only person that he seems to have much in common with is Adam Lanza. Uh, the you know who uh, who committed the evil at at, at Sandy Hook, um, but there's these are two people out of 330 million people, um, and, and so. Well, can I add? We all you're. This yeah. is such an important point because we also and and to Noah's earlier point about how the, the the solutions being proposed on either side kind of don't make sense. We don't even have the language and the way of talking about why these young men are doing this. We, we either avoid wanting to confront the realities of what's happened to their lives. Look, a lot of the, I, I do think the lockdowns affected a lot of these young men. They, they cite, some of them cite, cited that in, in reasoning for why they were doing so. There were all these red flags about their isolation and their enemy. Um, but we, as a society, we don't want to tackle that question because it's much thornier. It's much more difficult. It has to do with family structure. It has to do with social supports. And either side has already invested in ideological positions on those side, and they don't want to move. Um, and the same is true of the gun, the gun debate, right? It's we have to get rid of guns. They kill people on one side and we need to fortify our schools and turn them into barracks or fortresses, which is also not what school is supposed to be like for kids. I mean, both sides all, are unable to move. And it also would I just want to just that point on fortifying schools. There's there was this sort of big social media debate that erupted about doors, school doors and point of entry. They, they should have one point of entry. Fine, whatever. Um what on earth is to stop one of these shooters from then waiting till everyone exits the school? I mean, this is, you know, you just you just change the, the, the location of the horror, right? Well, I mean, all of this is adaptations from other things anyway, right? So you close all of the doors of ingress. You just you raise the cost of doing business, right? You make it harder for somebody to act on their impulses and to do something terrible. That's why, you know, you, uh, you barricade the cockpit door or you do, you know, you, you change the way the cockpit door, you, you have the, you have the stewardess or the steward put the, the, the food tray in front of the bathroom when the pilot has to go to the bathroom or something just to make it harder, right? You just want to make it harder. So I think a lot of those solutions are cheap and easy and obviously uh a lot of places only have one point of ingress and then they have fire doors and fire exits elsewhere and you know there's no reason that those should be open open or closed 
so I'm kind of disagreeing with you. I, I'm struck, by the way, by one interesting thing, which is that there's now talk that Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin, who tried to come together to do to do to make some commonsensical changes in the wake of Sandy Hook, are sort of at it again. And the discussion says things like they want to make very incremental changes, like little bits of change here and there. Um, and this dovetails in some ways with the initial response from Barack Obama and others that, you know, we need to do something, do anything to prevent this stuff from happening. So here we have members of the Senate uh, coming together to try to do something. Not huge, you know, something that might fit a consensus that is something that could be voted on in a bipartisan way little changes again that involve raising uh, you know raising the inconvenience level making it harder to make things like this happen if you're intent on making them happen and the discussion in the media is incredibly slighting rather than saying okay well you know we need to do something so here's what we can do on a practical basis. There are three or four little things we can do, and maybe they'll, maybe they'll make a difference. That was okay, apparently, to say on Tuesday. <clears throat> now it's not okay, because if you don't say all guns must be banned in the United States, you are apparently a tool of the NRA. You are just in the pocket of the gun lobby. Why are you favoring the gun lobby over you know, America's children or something like that? So the entire conversation has now already taken a turn into the wildly disingenuous. You know, as opposed, by the way, to a pretty serious way of looking at this, which is if you want gun reform in the United States in some fashion or other, and you're serious about it, I, don't even ask me what gun reform means. I'm just, I'm just making a political argument here. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Doing very little things to begin with that create a new, create alliances uh, on this matter that maybe will then show some success and then be followed on by other little things. That's how you affect change in, a, in the United States, for the most part. It's not these gigantic swings for the fences. You can sort of alter the political dynamic over time. If you can make very small agreements on things and then as a kind of test and then see how they go and whether more can be done. But of course, the people involved in this conversation are entirely uninterested in that, in all candor. They anybody want to say a, all guns should be banned. Yeah, anybody who has a strong view on guns has maximalist views on guns. The gun controllers right. want to remove categories of weapons from your from your ability to own them the pro-gun rights groups which i think are actually quite um recalcitrant on this to a degree that's paranoid um regard just about any federal reform as as prelude to confiscation um right and in ways that they they can't make the argument it's always a slippery slope argument but it's nevertheless one to which they're beholden and everybody in the middle just kind of has squishy views on this that aren't really well formed and they're not invested. So, so there are some interesting things that people are saying that 
raise interesting questions that then get to both constitutional rights and other things. Like, for example, this idea that you look at all these guys and many of them are under the age of 21. And you say, well, you know, we have a drinking age in much of the country that is 21. Why can't we have a gun sales regime in which gun sales are made, you know, illegal for anyone under 21? Um, as I say, that then gets into the question of, well, if you have a First Amendment right to own, a yeah, Second Amendment right to own, to own a weapon, um, how how can that be a proper limiting factor? Can it be? Can it not be? But we yeah, don't. We, but yeah, we we raise the drinking age, but you don't have a constitutional right to drink. Um, and yeah, but we can't give a baby a gun. I mean, like the, the, we do, we do place limits on the on who is allowed and who at what stage people are allowed to exercise rights. Um, I mean, I I always go back to the you can't rent a car until you're 25 because the idea being the risk the risk taking uh, right. calms down because your brain matures by the time you're 25. We have right. criminal justice you don't, laws that right. that reflect that too. But you don't have a constitutional right to rent a car. Right, right, exactly. There's but you no, do, you, right. But so, the, if you go to the meaning of the Second Amendment and the formation of militias, um, you know, you get into that argument of who is considered an adult then versus now, and how do we kind of? Right. Uh, well, that's I, why I think it's interesting, and yeah. I think the point here is that we have multiple actions taken by people who are under the age of 21, and I think it would be an interesting thing to debate uh, whether or not you could restrict gun ownership to people over 21, precisely using this argument that the temporal lobe is not fully formed, that the impulse, impulse control is not fully in place for particularly for males under the age of 21. Uh, and that, you know, this is, this is, this was one of the reasons that the drinking age was, was raised. Uh, was raised using modal using modalities that you can't really use in this case, right? Which is just like the federal government saying, "We're not going to let you have highway funds if you don't have a drinking age uh, of 21." Um, I don't know what the modality would be at the federal level to do what I'm talking about because, again, since you don't have a right to drink, I mean, you don't not you don't have a you know, you don't have a it, constitutionally expressed right to drink how you you know the limit limiting limiting access to alcohol is really a social norm right i mean uh and so the age level i mean now you can't buy a pack of cigarettes until you're 26 but you know john yeah. i think what you're saying you're making a very strong argument for changing the definition of adulthood um from from 18 right. to something like 21 which is interesting as well but would also then raise a whole slew of questions about serving in the arm in the armed forces and voting rights. Not not at all. And voting not rights. at all. Not at all. Because Why? people served in the armed forces forever before they were adult considered adults. And I mean, voting. Yeah, we also had no people, child labor laws. <laughs> right. Exactly. We, that doesn't no, work. No. Hold that would on. affect readiness. The voting age. The voting age was lowered to eighteen in nineteen seventy two. So you can't say that you know we had labor we had child labor laws for 100 years you know for for 80 years before 1972 so it's not true that you know 
that you can't change the definition of adulthood. As I say, we change the definition of adulthood at our convenience. But we have inconsistent we standards, I think, right? Yeah, and that, the, that's the right. that's the problem. And you're staring at like a condition this. where we're literally, by legal definition, sending children to war. Right. We always, uh, hold on. But we always have. Well, we don't I know. Mean, people went to war. No, but people went to war before they could vote until 1972. So if you're if, if if the term attaining your majority referred to the age of 21, not the age of 18. But we have I, all sorts of things. We let kids drive at 16. In as someone who's about to have 16-year-olds, that terrifies me. Just just putting that right. out there. Yes, as every But I mean I'm just saying I'm just saying we have an incredibly inconsistent set of definitions and they're the definitions that they are because a lot of these rules were made when people needed their kids to be able to drive, right? They, they, farmers needed their kids to be able to drive things to market and do stuff like that, you know? Um, and, and so norms that don't exist, say in my state, you know, New York state, where you have to be 18 or you can be 17 modified ways if you take driver's ed and all of that. But um, I shouldn't have gotten a driver's license at 16. But again, you're again talking about things that aren't specified in the Constitution as a as a civil right. No, but but there's but there's a very specific relationship between being old enough to buy a gun and being old enough to be a soldier. Um, that that's the thing, right? So if you said, well, their their brains aren't fully formed enough uh, for them to, you know, go out and and get a gun and use it uh, by their own lights, um, but It'll do for for the for the government to stick the gun go in through, their hand. But they go through eight People to are ten not gonna... weeks of training. If you if a kid goes into the military, he get eight he gets eight to ten weeks of training to learn how to be regimented. He's not just handed a gun and then he goes off and does whatever he wants to with the gun. But, like, but in a chaotic situation most... in a firefight, some of them do just go off and do something with a gun. I mean, that's the that's I well, think Gabe's argument. I I I'm. I can see that being an inconsistency that would be highlighted, just like I think if you don't if you want to want to raise the age limit for guns and you're a Democrat who wants more and more youth votes, you cannot argue that then they're it, they can't own a gun, but they can decide the future of the country in the ballot box like they, those those inconsistencies really would be uh, right. more glaring if we right. had some more national but that, but, adulthood standard. But I think that this. I think it is an arguable point that if what you people keep saying what these all have in common is that they all use their 15 so we should ban air 15s but what if what they all have in common is that they're under the age of 21 that's actually what they have in common they're all male they're all under the age of 21 and there are things we now know about the plasticity of the brain and the functioning of the temporal lobe and impulse control and the development of schizophrenia, by the way, that's that's the other central point, which is that schizophrenia only manifests itself in the late teens or really begins to manifest itself in the late teens. Paranoid schizophrenia, psycho, a certain type of paranoid schizophrenia that, that can involve psychosis and, and actions like this. OK, so I on. don't know. So there are yeah. demographics. So <clears throat> I was actually wrong when I said this the other day. There's um, National Institute for Justice. Uh, has this pretty great database about mass shootings and it details all of them that have taken place in this country between 1966 and today. And, um, you know, I had said 
you know, the AR-15s that, you know, they show up in all these events and they, they do when it comes to mass casualty events, big body counts, they, they do show up. Um, but to the tune of 77%, the preferred weapon by mass shooters is handguns. Uh, also, as far as mean ages go, uh, of the 172 individuals who engaged in public mass shootings in this database, 97% were men, but the age range is 11 to 70 with the mean of 34 and a half. Right. But we, of course, are, we are talking the demographic, about specific, the demographic right. feature that you wanted that, that links everybody together is um, male, maleness, maleness, and maleness. Yeah. yeah. And half of them are white. Uh, I mean, look, we have these bizarre moments, right? Like the 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 shooter at the Mandalay Bay in 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 Las Vegas, who was sixty two and didn't have a prior, had literally no was not on the radar screen of law enforcement at all in his entire life until he barricaded himself in that room and started shooting people out the window. Nobody, that's an inexplicable crime, and by definition, then un undefendable against but anyway i'm just saying but, i mean that the, but the, yeah the school shootings are a particular subcategory of these mass shootings and they are the ones that haunt us and make us question everything they are the most gruesome because they do involve children and i, I don't have this database before me but in those cases we're, we're talking about a much younger mean shooter are we not i would think so uh, yeah, just because right. the, well, the columbine the person, parkland this one yeah they right, the yeah. person who targets I mean, a school I mean, the is ones... likely not far outside of it right um but k-12 no, school most... shootings represent seven percent of all mass shootings right. okay so we're not really talking about mass shootings then we are talking right. about well, school shootings gets, yeah, or, like, yeah. or church or church and synagogue shootings right or sort of religious that's six percent shootings Places of worship, so six are, and a half percent. The most, most mass shootings right. are people settling beefs with because, each other in a right. setting, an urban setting. I mean, work, we have them all the time. Workplaces, yeah, workplaces bars yeah. and restaurants and right. retail establishments. Yeah. Right, which involve arguments that devolve into something horrible, not somebody deliberately going somewhere where people are going to be unarmed uh, and picking them off. Uh, and, you know, going to town, having a shooting gallery like that's So even there, we are talking about a subsection of something that is defined so broadly that it, it brings in disparate factoids so a, what there, we yeah go ahead I, I was gonna say but there is first of all we also don't define mass shootings uh, honestly right so they'll they'll in cities like in chicago and dc parts of new york they'll define gang activity not as mass shooting activity even though it is in fact uh, weekly there's a mass shooting in chicago weekly there are mass shootings in some of these cities but they're not defined that way because that would change our understanding of mass shootings and it's i i actually think it's a terrible sleight of hand because they do share in common the thing we've been talking about which is mass men men are committing these crimes they're in there's a if you want to talk about a crisis of masculinity that isn't the kind of uh bs toxic masculinity that we hear from the left there is a crisis of manhood in this country and you could argue that all of these things are an expression of it but again i go back to the fact that it's very difficult to have that conversation because it starts getting at some of the root things that actually where conservative arguments have proven correct tragically about families about social structure about the institutions around families and communities that help rescue some of these kids that get lost. So I think that's important. 
I want to go back to this notion of training and the military because the United States does not put guns in the hands of 18-year-olds and say, go to. The entire process by which somebody becomes a somebody with a gun in a military situation is a lengthy, laborious, character-constructing process in which, as a person with a gun, they are part of a larger organization in which they must submit to orders and commands and not have their own free use and rely on their own judgment in all but the most extreme cases. That is what the training is for. Similarly, responsible gun owners who have guns in their home, such people train their children from a young age in the responsible use of guns, where to put them, how to lock them away, where to put the ammunition, how to use them, how to shoot them, where to shoot them. Uh, how to target all of that and this process. I don't think we look at this and say a, a, a dad who goes out with his son and teaches him how to shoot a gun at the age of nine or eight or seven or 10 is doing something. That kid is going to be a responsible user of a gun owing to training. We don't let people, I mean, this is where it gets complicated again because of the civil right. Like we, we, we don't let people drive cars without licenses. Usually people say that as a means of talking about background checks and so like that. But what I mean by that is, you know, we, we, the licensing process is a safety process. It is a process that says you can't just buy this two, you know, one ton piece of machinery that could be a projectile weapon that could end up killing 50 to 100 people if the crash is bad. You don't just get to buy one and drive it off the lot. You have to go through a process that shows that you can handle the machine and there is an independent tester who says, okay, this person has shown the skills necessary to do it. The thing that makes guns different is the Second Amendment. And people can scream and yell. That's why Brett Stevens, our contributing editor and friend, Brett says... The only real process that would be honest in relation to this is the revocation of the Second Amendment. That's not going to happen. But um, all jurisprudence over the last 10, 12 years has pointed to the fact that the language of the Constitution makes it very difficult for political entities to restrict gun ownership or to restrict, you know, in Illinois, other places. Now people can say this is because the judiciary has gone conservative, but that's a lot of, that's a lot of hooey. Like it says in the constitution, the right to bear arms will not be abridged. That's what it says. And you can claim that the first clause limits it. And we already allow limits. You can't own a machine gun, for example, there are limits that have become sort of, maybe they won't last. I don't know, but we are in a situation in which the logic is that people need irresponsible people by definition are getting their hands on this, these 
uh, weapons of death and then are using them and, and in very limited cases need to be prevented from doing so, right? So if you're talking about, you can't do this this way, but if you're talking about males between the ages of 18 and 21, right? There are about, uh, I don't know, seven and a half million of them. So is, is that fair? Is it fair because every year, maybe now, from now going forward, two out of those seven and a half million will take guns and go shoot 20 innocent people? So can you limit gun ownership for everybody else? The other seven and a half million. First of all, you can't do it for men only, but I'm just using that as an example. These are fiendishly difficult questions, which is why we should get back to the failure of law enforcement. Because if law enforcement had behaved the way we would have, we, we lionize our safety officer, you know, if they behaved like firemen, fire, what do firemen do? Firemen run into, they, they run into a fire. They're trained to run into a fire. That's what they do. It's crazy. They're crazy. Who does that? Every human impulse you have says you don't run into a fire, you run away from a fire. That's what they do for us. That's how that, that's what they do. What happened here? And because it happened here in a way that we neither expect nor think is acceptable, why are we implicating all of society in what happened on Tuesday? This was a failure of government. This was a failure of a government agency or government, whatever you want to call it. It's not a failure of our society that, 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 that this kid existed. Kids like this maybe always exist. He was in there for 40 minutes. Nobody went in to stop him. It was, yeah, now, it was people, actually there. They didn't even follow the existing protocol for these situations. They should never have waited. You're supposed to go right in. They, this was supposed to be the lesson that law enforcement learned after Columbine. And clearly they did not. Well, he was confronted and then they took fire and retreated. That's the story that we have today. And it's not as though people didn't go rushing in there. They did. The parents. The parents did. Right. That's what the I'm saying. Yeah. The parents did because, yeah, parents did and this Border Patrol agent did. I mean, it, you know, look, I'm not a police officer. I don't want to, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful thing to be a police officer. And I don't know what I would do in a circumstance like that and if I would panic and all of that. But again, that goes to now we're talking about training. The whole thing about these people is that they're supposed to be trained to do what they do and that they're supposed to be, you know, we pay them for this. We don't pay them, you know, to write citations about broken taillights. This is why we have, this is the reason this is the Hobbesian world that cops are supposed to prevent, the world of the shooter in Ubalde. And so I'm, I'm, that's why I think some incremental changes, if they can have serious conversations about incremental changes, that would be kind of um, heartening. In part because we should be reacting modestly to this event in that sense. Because if things had gone better, a lot of those kids wouldn't have been killed. If they had done what they were supposed to do, 
they're not responsible for the deaths because only the shooter is responsible for the deaths. But there was some heart, it appears there was some horrifying kind of negligence at work. It's, you know, it's absolutely enraging and heartbreaking and terrifying, but it does, it does limit the sociological head scratch, you know, like chin scratching that we've been doing in relation to the crimes here and committed. Look, I think it's an, a great point about incremental change because I, in thinking about it, where do we ever, in what realm do we ever sort of enthusiastically discuss incremental change in terms of policy anymore? Um, it's it's not at all what people are interested in or where the energy is. And so the result is paralyzing because if you have people proposing sweeping uh, reforms or drastic changes, the the opposition to that is always going to at least balance out the enthusiasm for it. This is my hobby horse, <laughs> incremental change and, you know, uh, limited, very narrow objectives. But that's also why it's going to fail. You won't get incremental change because there's no appetite for it. Well, there's no appetite for it. That's the that's the tragic part of our current political situation, which is that if we could downshift government into making incremental changes that clean things up and, you know, sort of like sand off rough edges or, you know, make sure that things work more smoothly after change. And by definition, that satisfy would, no one. Well, well, it would satisfy no one at the moment, except over time, this is actually how you rebuild faith and trust in government. And you say, look, we're, we're not here to change the world. We're here but, to make things work more smoothly and work better. And that's something that everybody wants. But this is the problem because we only, because as Abe says, we only make these sweeping changes and, and can't manage to do the incremental ones. You know who does do incremental change well behind the scenes with no accountability? Bureaucracies, administrators and agencies that don't have direct accountability to voters who, who do stuff often, unfortunately, in our system, ideologically motivated stuff and get things done that way. And then it's much, much harder for the average citizen to unravel how that process got there. They just try to open a small business and suddenly they're slapped with so many regulations, so much red tape. They're like, what is going on here? Can't someone change this? And their local city council person or, or mayor or you know elected officials like, I don't know what to tell you. This is just the system we have. So there's a, we in a weird sort of way, Leviathan ends up making the incremental changes, but almost never with any recourse to the actual needs of citizens. Boy, that's a good point. Uh, I think I'm going to cut us short here. We had a, you know, we maybe talk about the Donbass and maybe guests are long delayed and ever. Oh, I was going to call an audible. Long COVID. What? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, what? This thing that, did you see this New York City subway ad campaign? It is no. absolutely infuriating. Empowering right, so yourself with Very heroin. briefly, <laughs> our friend Noah Pollock found this and uh, it was subsequently picked up by uh, Joe Borelli, who's the uh, minority leader of the New York City Council. And it's a public relations campaign uh, about um, the use of illicit opioids and opiates. Uh, and it, it begins with this big headline, quote, don't be ashamed that you're using, be empowered that you're using safely. And it subsequently says a lot of things about, oh, you know, fentanyl's really bad. You got to test for fentanyl. Fentanyl's really dangerous. But prevent overdoses by doing the following. Avoid using alone. Take turns. Start with small doses and go slowly. 
have naloxone on hand, avoid mixing drugs and test your drugs. Um, I'm a real squish when it comes to substance abuse. I think a lot of substances that are scheduled drugs should be legalized and regulated and their doses should be, should be regularized. Um, so I'm very libertarian on that with the exception of opioids and opiates. There is no such thing as best practice for doing illicit opiates and opiates. And there is no such thing as doing opiates and opiates that only affect you. This is a communal experience. You will share your experience with your community. Anybody who's had any experience with somebody who's addicted to heroin or fentanyl, or half a dozen other of these substances, knows that it is the closest thing to death this side of the grave. And it takes your community with you. Um, this is the most outrageous, most reckless spectacle to which I think I've been privy in a public relations campaign. Your tax dollars are funding it. And it is absolutely horrid. It will have profoundly terrible effects. And we are witnessing it. Every you walk the streets and you see these zombies who are being coddled and enabled by the state to in, endure this living death and take their communities with them. You can debate safe sites. They're debatable. I'm, I'm not predisposed to favoring them, but they're debatable. You can't debate this. The state should not yeah. encourage this conduct. And the and fact that it is, is a crime. No, uh, first to I wanna, about what that means. So go ahead. Well, I, I, I want to applaud your, your eloquence on that. I was nodding along enthusiastically. I just want to add also the sense of resignation um, that, that, that this broadcasts a campaign like this. I said this last um, night, we lost the war on drugs. So we decided to unconditionally surrender to them. Exactly. Yes. Um, but, you know, no, you referred to safe sites, which is a, which is a shorthand for something that is actually going on in New York City right now, uh, <clears throat> because these things are totally connected. In New York City, New York City has opened two sites run by the city uh, where people can current, use currently illicit drugs in a medically supervised environment and receive treatment resources. So you go into a city-run, taxpayer-funded office, you know, place where people are working and you go in with your crack pipe or your works or whatever, and you use in this facility so that if you overdose, there's somebody there to put the give you a you shot know, of adrenaline into yeah. your heart. Get your heart going back. Yeah. Um I don't know what I mean this is so immoral. <laughs> Uh, that it, it, I can't even, and I heard Eric Adams celebrating uh, when it happened. And uh, there was all this celebration of these opening of these facilities and all that. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm actually, I find my, I find myself unable even to open, to, to complete a sentence about the moral madness and the turpitude here. In impracticality. I mean, even if you don't want to apply a moral framework here, a civilization that commits itself to this course is on a path towards suicide. But it's not just that. I mean, that's one thing. That's that's the moral. That's the moral dimension that we are essentially uh, we're not decriminal. We are supporting people using drugs that can kill them, that 
And that's number one. And the number two, it's against the law. So the, the social organization that we're all part of, the city, is paying for you under its umbrella to break the law. And to encourage it. They are encouraging this by saying this is empowering. There is nothing more disempowering than using heroin or fentanyl or any other opioid or opiate illicitly. I mean, look, if what you what you want to say is <clears throat> we are we are powerless to prevent any of this. So rather than people having shooting galleries in tenement apartments, um, you know, where it's really disgusting because they just throw up on the floor and nobody cleans it up. We're, we're going to find nice office space. They can come in there. They'll do it there. If they throw up on the floor, someone will mop it up. We'll pay them, you know, $10 over the minimum wage to do that. And basically, we're just going to consign anybody who has this kind of problem uh, to a kind of perpetual wardship as a ward of the state that will not moralize about their their behavior or conduct walk in you can do it you know five minutes before if you'd walked into a, a city-owned building and shot up you would have been arrested but now we don't arrest people for that anymore i mean it's i don't even know what it is it's a surrender what do you even call it i mean i don't we don't have the vocabulary for this it is resignation in some well but they're but they're celebratory about it. But that's just the language that they people, use for everything. It's all just it's just sort of postmodern. Everything has to be some form of you know empowerment and individual, you know, self fulfillment and self actualization. Even the stuff that robs you of actualization and self fulfillment. All right. So listen to this. Okay, hold on. Where is this? New York Harm Reduction Education. This was the, for more than 29 years, we have dedicated our lives to ending overdose deaths and the criminalization and stigma associated with substance use. Being the first OPC site in the US is an honor, an incredible step forward in ending the overdose crisis. So now we don't have a drug crisis. First of all, the crisis is an overdose crisis, not a use crisis and the use is no longer to be called abuse because that's, of course, you know, uh, that kind of vocabulary is um, stigmatizes you. Shit. It stigmatizes your behavior, and everything that you do yeah. should be rewarded by the state and supported. So here, and yeah. we can't question your decisions. Yeah. So here, come in and put a needle in your arm, and we'll pat you on the top of the head. It's just, you know, now we're back to the what is wrong with our society conversation that I was trying to move away from in the case of the Uvalde shooting since the specific, but this is, this is, there's something very, very wrong, very wrong. I want to uh, tell everybody, make one programming note. That was what I was going to do before Noah called his audible. Um, next Tuesday, we're not going to have a show on Monday because of Memorial Day. We'll be back on Tuesday, and that will actually be uh, after Tuesday. Our Christine Rosen will be taking a three-month break from the podcast to finish her very important book on 
social media tech. And I'm, on, and and I'm on loan to the Library of Congress during those three months, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, so uh, uh, tragically, she will not, we will not be recipients of her daily wisdom uh, or her high good humor or anything like that, but we, we will be, we will, we will struggle on without her and we'll have a series of guests and things like that. But I just did want to tell, tell everybody that we're not here on Monday and that, you know, if you want a nice commemorative show, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll all sing the time, the time of our life. And, you know, we'll all cry as Christine goes off for the I'll summer. be back in a few months. <laughs> okay. Anyway, have a great Memorial Day weekend, everybody. For Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Popor. It's Keep the Candle Burning.